October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 16, What's in a Name? Last time, we talked about the huge problem the Sabbatarian Adventist movement had in keeping their preachers in the field. Not paying them a salary meant that for at least one-third of the year, they had to stop preaching and go work in a field or something. Their families endured great hardship, and the stress of this system, or lack of a system, was threatening to hamstring the movement, which was otherwise running at a good pace. We saw how it bothered James White and others, because the movement was growing, but somehow unable to support itself. So everyone came together in a general conference, and boom, systematic benevolence, or Sister Betsy, was born. You will recall that Sister Betsy called for, on average, about 13 cents a week to be laid aside to support the work. Donating was entirely voluntary, as the Adventists felt they had no biblical grounds to demand a specific amount. After all, Paul simply told the believers to give whatever amount was in their heart. That said, if your heart wasn't sure on how much to give, J.N. Andrews, who helped come up with the plan, would be more than happy to suggest an amount. And that's where we left off. That episode on systematic benevolence is really the foundation to a trilogy of episodes we're now starting on how this ragtag movement became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yay, organization! If we learned anything so far, we have learned that organization happened organically. Organization happened whenever the mission demanded it. Systematic benevolence, that is, having a plan for all these churches to collect money, was a huge step towards organization. I mean, it's one thing to all hang out together and donate money whenever you can, but when someone says, hey guys, why don't we start asking people to pay every week, then that's when you start thinking about how committed you really are. A regular source of income means there's an infrastructure we're going to try to build and maintain. That's not something for the kiddos. We're all grown up now. So here we begin our trilogy of episodes on how this movement made the critical transition from adolescence into adulthood. After that, we'll talk about the Civil War, because, hey, it's 1860, and some dude named Lincoln is going to be elected in November. I wonder how he's going to handle this slavery issue. Anyway, here we go. So step one in becoming Seventh-day Adventists. Question, how did they get to be called Seventh-day Adventists? I'm glad you asked. I've been calling them Sabbatarian Adventists to distinguish them from the Sunday-keeping Adventists who followed Joshua V. Himes and William Miller out of the Great Disappointment of 1844. But these Sabbath-keeping Adventists were called all sorts of names, like Seventh-day People, which is my favorite, and Seventh-day Door Shutters, Seventh-day Brethren, Sabbath-keeping Remnant of Adventists, and Shut Door Seventh-day Sabbath Annihilationists, which is epic if you're trying to fit as many doctrines as possible into one name. Adventists even referred to themselves by a variety of names, like the Little Flock or the Remnant. So in our branding-obsessed world today, this was a marketing nightmare. The thing is, these guys didn't much care. It was about what you believed, not what you called yourself. Choosing a name wasn't really a goal at all, but something they just sort of had to do while solving another organizational problem. That problem was sparked by an innocent bit of housekeeping on James White's part. In February of 1860, James wrote a pair of short articles in the review 
bemoaning the financial state of the press. The first article was entitled, Bills, Bills. Apparently, some people weren't paying their subscriptions, and so the review was some $2,000 in debt. The youth's instructor was owed $500 in late subscriptions. That's a lot of money today, let alone in 1860. So let's get on it, people. Pay your bills. James's second article in that issue was called Borrowed Money and expressed appreciation for all those who had lent the review money but wanted to remind them kindly not to come looking for James Tiberius White if something should happen to the review. Editor's note, James White's middle name was Springer, not Tiberius. But then James did the radical thing and said, hey, in light of these mounting debts and the fact that a little spark could destroy everyone's investment here in Battle Creek, maybe we should get the press insured and, while we're at it, find a way to legally hold our church buildings. Now you say, Matthew, my 19th century Michigan law is a little rusty, so enlighten me what's going on here. Very well then. While we've been talking about the review as if it's this established business, it really wasn't. Legally speaking, it all belonged to James White. Yes, there was a publishing committee, but you'll recall that it was only set up to take a lot of the workload off of James White. The committee actually had no legal authority. If someone wanted to sue the review, they would sue James White. If the review's creditors suddenly demanded the thousands that they had lent the review, they would go after James White. So after James listed off some of the debts the review had, he wanted to express just how very much he didn't want to personally be on the line for everything. And who can blame him? And in a bit of prophetic foreshadowing, James also hinted that people's hard-earned cash that they had loaned to the review would be worth nothing if the place burned down. The property wasn't insured. So if the whole place burned down, that was it. No steam press anymore, no review every week, no books. Surely the review office will never burn down, right? So, yeah, let's get legal and stuff. James closed his article by asking for a better plan, because he really didn't know the right way to go here. He was just offering some suggestions. John Loughborough was on board, at least. He wrote that, quote, No reasonable man could blame Brother White for not wishing to be responsible for the debts of the review office. Now, what I understand is necessary to remedy all the defect here is in this matter that we can hold church property legally. Then the property could be held in the name of the church, insured in the name of the church, money borrowed in the name of the church, and no individual would have to take a burden upon him which he ought not to bear, end quote. Well, that seems reasonable, right? The review should be the property of the entire church. Every church building should be the property of the entire church. They should all share in the risks and the rewards. The problem was James's solution. By becoming some sort of legal entity with a board of directors and shareholders was a huge step toward the kind of organization that scared the bejeebies out of the Adventists. And, sure enough, Roswell Cottrell, who was one of the editors of the review, had a plan, all right. And his plan was to absolutely, positively, not do what James White and John Loughborough were suggesting. He wrote a very gentle, well-written appeal to both Loughborough and White, resurrecting the old warnings of becoming like Babylon. His position went like this. Number one, 
To choose a name would make Adventists just like Babylon, by which he meant all of those other corrupt churches out there. He wrote, quote, We want no name with the two-horned beast, and it would close my mouth in regard to the spiritual fornication of Babylon with the kings of the earth. Should it ever be retorted, you look to the civil arm for aid and protection, end quote. What Cottrell meant was that Adventists saw the second beast of Revelation 13 as the United States. To legally incorporate meant to join the review or the church at large with the United States and rely upon her laws to safeguard it. He would find it hard to tell other people to beware of the beast if his own group, if his own church, were relying upon her. He especially, number two, didn't like the idea of getting insurance. Isn't Jesus coming soon? Wouldn't buying insurance be a lack of faith in him? Shouldn't we trust God to insure our stuff? He told the Review's readers that if you lend money to the Review, you lend it to God. Whatever happens after that is in his hands. Number three. Finally, he told everyone that churches are already legally held by the individuals on whose land they sit. There was also no Bible verse supporting such a move. He called the plan to organize legally, quote, an evil in God's sight, end quote. So, yeah. This wasn't just a disagreement over what color carpet to put in the church. That said, Cottrell did sympathize with James's predicament. Being responsible for all of the review's debts? Yeah. But his solution was simply to encourage everyone to pretend that James White wasn't responsible. So if something happens to the review, don't go after James. He wrote, We can trust each other. Thank the Lord. End quote. But then he added, quote, and if any man proves a Judas, we can still bear the loss and trust the Lord. End quote. This was a powerful rhetorical argument. I mean, we're all believers in Jesus. Shouldn't we be able to trust each other and not rip each other off or sue each other? If we can't trust each other, then what's the point? Powerful though it may have been, Cottrell's articles did absolutely nothing to soothe James White. It's as if Cottrell said, don't worry, James, if people come to you to collect the debts you've taken out for us, we've got your back. Which is nice and very easy to say if you're not the guy whose back needs protecting. Not only did Cottrell not soothe James, Cottrell actually alarmed him. Because Cottrell represented an awful lot of people out there, and his words reinforced this very conservative position which incidentally, was pretty much everyone's position ten years before. But James and some others had grown past that, seeing the absolute need for building this movement on a strong foundation. White's reaction to Contra was swift, blunt, and decisive. Really, this is James White at his literary best, even if his bluntness struck many as being unnecessarily harsh. He began by almost apologizing for Contra, saying that, quote, this is not his usual style of treating subjects, end quote. If Cottrell talked about the Sabbath like this, his opponents would charge him with being unreasonable, White said. Cottrell said that there was no Bible verses supporting legal incorporation as a church. White told people that there weren't any Bible verses against it either, and nor were there Bible verses about having a weekly paper, having a steam press, or the publishing of books, and yet, James said, we all still do that. 
White said that Jesus told people to, quote, let your light so shine before men, end quote, without telling them exactly how to do it. It was left for us to figure that out. And James said elsewhere, we regard it as dangerous to leave with the Lord what he has left for us. And so James White introduced a groundbreaking principle for the movement to use to resolve these kinds of issues. James, in fact, calls it a rule, and it goes like this, quote, All means which, according to sound judgment, will advance the cause of truth and are not forbidden by plain scriptural declarations, should be employed, end quote. Or, to put it more simply, so long as the Bible isn't against something, use your common sense and reason to go forward. Cottrell and many others wanted the Bible to explicitly approve any path that they take. But James said, that's silly. There's tons of things the Bible doesn't talk about. We don't need the Bible to explicitly approve every plan. We just need to make sure the Bible isn't against it. And then we just use common sense to figure out what to do. With this principle in mind, James demolished the rest of Cottrell's arguments. Is legal incorporation joining with the beast of Revelation 13? James said it was fanaticism to reject all relationships with a lawful government. After all, don't we pay taxes? And what about Cottrell's assertion that we should be able to trust each other? James reminded his readers that during the Millerite movement of 1844, a group in Cincinnati built a church on one of the members' property. Well, that brother realized that he could make some money turning that building into a business, so he kicked out the church and did just that. The church then went and built a church on another member's property, who, in a matter of months, kicked them out too. James asks, was God honored in this? This was another bit of prophetic foreshadowing, and in about 50 years, the church would learn a very, very, very painful lesson about how much you can lose when someone privately owns church property and decides to bolt and, you know, takes one of the most famous hospitals in the world with him. History would be firmly on James White's side here, except that uh, no one knew that yet. James portrayed Cottrell's position the way any progressive-minded person would, as a long-standing struggle against a fearful conservatism that constantly blocks efforts to move forward. James alluded to his struggles in getting the review started in the first place, hinting at the fact that Joseph Bates thought publishing a paper would make the church more like, you guessed it, Babylon, and he refused to write for it for a full year. Then there was Rochester, where many people opposed James moving there at all, because the town was so worldly. Oh, and then it came time to upgrade and get a steam press, and once again people questioned the necessity. James wrote that, quote, Some put on the brakes, fearing the train would run too fast, end quote. And then he went on to extend that metaphor and summed it all up this way, quote, We give it as our humble opinion, that there are altogether too many brakemen along for the benefit of the train. End quote. While some might see James as trying to push the movement to go too far, too fast, he chose to see it as a case of having too many cautious people who were afraid of what God was doing. It was brilliant, brilliant writing. Except, like we said, a lot of people thought James was a little too harsh on Cottrell. 
Anyone who read the two men's articles side by side could see the difference in tone. Cottrell was firm, but respectful and gentle. James was certainly respectful, but the overwhelming force and passion of his rhetoric made it seem like a disproportionate response. A year and a half later, M.E. Cornell defended James in the review, saying that he, too, initially thought James to be in the wrong here. But after seeing the influence of Cottrell's article in galvanizing the anti-organization mentality, he realized that the issues were bigger than just these two men. James saw the implication Cottrell's views had for the movement, and he knew a lot of people had what Cornell called, quote, a general distrust and fear of organization, end quote. Cornell laid out his conclusion pretty starkly, quote, if it had not been for the plain dealing and perseverance of Brother White, the effort to organize would have been a failure, end quote. The issue was debated in almost every issue of the review for six months following James's first article. At last, a general conference meeting was called for September 28th, 1860. Churches across the country were asked to send delegates to represent them, and so they did. All of the regulars were there, Moses Hull, Emmy Cornell, Joseph Bates, who chaired the meeting as usual, J.H. Wagoner, James White, John Loughborough, Frisbee, Poole, J.N. Andrews, Uriah Smith, and a guy named T.J. Butler. What followed were a few very intense days of discussion. Right off the bat, a man named Brackett made a motion for the church to organize. Loughborough spoke up, suggesting he say, legally organize. Both he and James White now made the case for church organization in a decidedly less aggressive way as they did in the review some six months before. The delegates broke down into two parties. James White led the move for the church and the press to become a legal entity. Loughborough, Brackett, and Cornell were on his team, and so was Bates. J.N. Andrews led the other camp, confessing that he really understood where James was coming from, but just didn't believe the example of the New Testament church allowed for becoming a legal entity. Once again, he was operating under the principle that if the Bible doesn't approve it, we can't do it. And that was fundamentally what this was over. But Andrews suggested a compromise. Let's only incorporate the review and not the church. Now that was a novel idea. It didn't quite solve the problem of churches being owned by private individuals. And on that note, they simply voted to recommend that local churches organize legally. But it did fix the main problem, the review being on James's shoulders. Wagoner, also on Andrew's team, produced a letter from Cottrell, who regretted that he couldn't make it. Cottrell essentially agreed with Andrews. Cottrell was very much against the idea of the church organizing into a denomination in order to hold church property to collectively. He understood the danger James warned about with a member leaving the movement and taking the church with them. But Cottrell said he was, quote, preferring always to lose them totally than to sacrifice their scriptural organization as a church of Jesus Christ, end quote. That said, yeah, He's fine with the review becoming a business organization. James White was interested, but there were still several problems with this. First, Michigan law didn't recognize such an organization yet. Second, as James noted again rather prophetically, 
that a business association would be open for any interested person to join and vote in as a shareholder? What would stop people from hijacking the press by voting in directors who aren't as committed to the cause? To that issue, they would just have to elect good people and hope for the best. While not everyone was excited about forming a business association of the review, which would be called the Advent Review Publishing Association, they all recognized it as the best solution. It passed unanimously. As soon as the publishing association was established, Brackett made a motion to adopt a name. A name was, after all, required to hold this property legally, and everyone had an opinion on this. James made a memorable point. We give our children names, he wrote, when they become a few weeks or a few months old. When we commenced to labor in this work, when the cause was young and individuals who had embraced it few, we did not see the necessity of such steps. But it seems to me that the child is now so grown that it is exceedingly awkward to have no name for it. End quote. Poole thought it would just make them one more denomination among denominations. Frisbee opposed the name, but also opposed being known by a variety of names, so he went along with it. Moses Hull, clearly not influenced by any marketing classes, suggested that each local church be called, quote, the church worshiping on the seventh day in such and such places, end quote. Butler said he didn't object to this as much as he used to, which I guess is a good thing. And Belden, the man who owned the Battle Creek Church, said very memorably that, quote, going without a name would, in my opinion, be like publishing books without titles or sending out a paper without a heading, end quote. You may be surprised to know that the most popular name they discussed was Church of God. James White and Frisbee had preferred this name. There was a logical simplicity to it clearly reflective of a group that thought of themselves as restoring the lost truths of the Bible. It didn't fly, however. Mostly because there were already plenty of groups using that name, and still are today. Plus, it seemed to some that it sounded a bit presumptuous, as if we are the church of God, and anyone not in this church is just wasting their time on the way to hell, or something. Fair enough. So someone, we're not exactly sure who proposed the name Seventh-day Adventist. It stuck. It stuck because it seemed to describe two of the more unique things about this movement. The Seventh-day refers to the Sabbath. The Adventist part, of course, refers to the expectation that Jesus will return soon. So if someone says, Hi, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, then you'd already know a bit about what they believe. I mean, hey, come on, why do you think Baptists are called Baptist? Or the Unitarians are Unitarian? or the Lutherans are Lutheran. Seventh-day Adventists joined the long line of Christians who specialize in basic descriptive names. Like all of those other names people were using to describe these Adventists, it seemed that Seventh-day Adventist was something that had been used at least since 1853 when the Seventh-day Baptists wrote to the Review and asked what you Seventh-day Advent people believed in. In an evangelistic meeting in the 1850s in Michigan, John Loughborough used Seventh-day Advent people in an advertisement. So really, the 1860 General Conference just chose a name that was already being used. So, the motion was made by David Hewitt to call themselves Seventh-day Adventists. It's kind of poetic, isn't it? 
You remember when Joseph Bates strolled into Little Battle Creek and asked the postmaster who the most honest man in town was? Being told it was David Hewitt, Bates strode on over to his house, found Hewitt at breakfast, and by the end of the day, Hewitt was convinced that this movement was right. So David Hewitt was the first Sabbatarian Adventist in this new Mecca called Battle Creek, and he was the one to make the motion for the name by which this group would forever be known. Here are his words. Quote, resolved that we take the name Seventh-day Adventists. End quote. The group talked about it for a bit, and then it was completely rejected. They didn't seem to like how it was worded, or who knows what was going on, so Poole changed it from take the name to call ourselves. Ah, that's just so much better. A vote was taken, a vote was carried. Sorry, David Hewitt. It's interesting to note that T.J. Butler voted against the motion. Butler and the church he represented in Ohio would end up leaving the movement. Initially, J. Ann Andrews abstained from voting as well, but eventually he came around and supported the name. Choosing the name Seventh-day Adventist wasn't exactly a shining moment where the clouds parted, but it's certainly notable how, despite the strong convictions for and against this move, it didn't result in a huge schism. Other than Butler leaving, this went pretty smoothly. It could have torn the church apart if stronger, more stubborn personalities were at stake. But even Roswell Cottrell came around. While his opinion on the right course didn't change, he supported the cause. Cottrell doesn't get enough credit for the utterly selfless way he handled the whole affair. He never let his ego get in the way, of where the majority of the church thought God was leading them. As the church grew and became increasingly organized, Cottrell was never bitter. His conservatism was sometimes in sync with the church, and sometimes it wasn't. But his attitude was summed up in a June 5, 1860 article in the Review, where he said, quote, I did not wish to throw any obstacles in the way of the advancement of the truth in saying what I did in regard to a name, insurance, etc., I should be very sorry to wound the cause I love. End quote. He wasn't weak or ambivalent. He wrote, quote, Having done my duty, I submit to the judgment of the church. End quote. And that was all. We need more of that guy. So, as of October 1st, 1860, I can now finally refer to this movement as a movement of Seventh day Adventists. You have no idea how annoying it has been to call them Millerites, and then Adventists, and then Sabbatarian Adventists. Finally, we get to a name that will stick. Sure, not everyone loved the name. Some people obsessed that God would only work with them if they chose something like Christian Church or Church of God. But this was all nonsense to Ellen White, who loved the name. She wrote, The name Seventh-day Adventist carries the true features of our faith in front, and will convict the inquiring mind. Like an arrow from the Lord's quiver, it will wound the transgressors of God's law and will lead toward repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. Ellen White, yeah, we haven't heard from her in a while. She wasn't involved in the meeting because a week before it started, she had just given birth to her fourth and final son, John Herbert White. That seems like a good place to stop and catch our breath. Let's let James and Ellen enjoy their two new children, one which was named John Herbert and one which was named the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>